Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Established in 2021, this is a platform where you can listen to incredible conversations with former AFL, A-League and NBL players discussing their lives and careers as professional athletes. Previous guests welcomed on the show include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Green, Travis Stork, everybody, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Kicker, Eugene Griffiths, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Dan Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferris, Sean Reddish, Tony McIntyre, Andrew Laffoff, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Ackermanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Gould, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Thurst, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stathwell, Dusty Rakeheart, Dan Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgetsky, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fendi, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grick, Rick Latson, Rod Jefferson, Toby Thurston, Scott Lee, Andrew Jarman, Evan Christopoulos, Simon Beasley, Anthony Kudafides. Links to all previous episodes are down below in the archives, available for you whenever you want to listen, as well as all social media links, including Facebook, Instagram, X, LinkedIn, and YouTube. But for right now, Let's kick off this latest episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, episode 47. This is your host, Daniel, and thank you all very much for tuning into the show. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end, and as always, hoping all is well for you listening from your end, and hopefully you all continue to enjoy listening to the content. I'd firstly like to give a big shout out to partner of the podcast for their ongoing support, Cappuccinos, most appreciated, and you'll learn a little bit more about them and the services they provide a little later on. But moving on from that first episode of 2024, very, very lucky, very fortunate to be joined by one of the greatest AFL players of the last, what, 30 years, and certainly one of Carlton's greatest ever players we're joined by Anthony Kudafides, the Adonis himself. What a way to kick off 2024. The son of European migrants, Italian mother and Greek-Egyptian father, Kuda spent most of his childhood and teenage years as an outstanding track and field athlete and could very well have been good enough to be an Olympian but chose to pursue a career in Australian rules football where he eventually received a letter from Carlton Football Club age 14 and would make it onto the club's senior list for the 1991 season and until his retirement in 2007 became one of the most powerful and athletic players we have ever seen. He was the OG one-handed pickup, that incredible ability to pick the ball up with one hand, fending off a player with the other. He won numerous individual awards including the 2000 MVP, he was twice a Carlton's best and fairest, leading goal kicker award and was twice an All-Australian across 278 AFL games. But the greatest moment of his career was being part of Carlton's 1995 Premiership. Throughout this conversation, we discuss growing up European, his slow burn to stardom, the joy of the 1995 season, and also the devastating tragedy of losing his father, Jim. His incredible final quarter in the 1999 preliminary final where he single-handedly dragged Carlton into the grand final. His injury battles through his career, as well as the difficult period under Dennis Pagan and the shift in culture at the Carlton Football Club during this time. And lastly, we touch on his television roles on Gladiator, The Footy Show, and Dancing with the Stars. So no more introduction needed. Let's get the Greek god on himself in conversation with Anthony Kudafides. Mate, oh. he's kicked into his teammate. Loose ball, Kudafides. Quick snap. He's kicked the goal! Kuda has kicked the goal! Oh! Big mark from Kuda! Kuda just hauled it in out of mid-air. Gave it to Kuda. Tight angle. Bends it back. Oh, what a kick! What a kick! What a goal! Amato's fifth quarter podcast, episode 47, in conversation with Anthony Kudafides. Kuda, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Daniel. Great to be on, mate. Kurt, it's been well, over 15 years now since you last played in the AFL. What have you been doing since that? I see I've been doing a bit of research and see you ride into health and fitness with Herbalife and, and also Kuda Fit. Can you tell us a bit about where you're at in life now post-playing? 
Yeah, Danny, yeah, when I retired in 2007, so 16 years ago, like yeah, I did get a little bit lost. Yeah, I was a bit unsure of what I was going to do. I always thought I'd probably get back in some sort of thing in, in football, but when I did try to get back, all the doors were closed. So it was a little bit of a sign to say maybe it is time to move on. And so I got really unwell in 2010 with my health. I'd sometimes sleep 11 hours a night and mate, I'd still go, I'd go to work and still get home and sleep on the couch and I'd just stop training for a little while. So I was going through quite a bit at that stage, eating organic food to try to get myself better, thinking I knew everything about nutrition. But a friend of mine had been doing Herbalife for a long time. I had no idea what it was, but we sat down and he showed me the products. And when he told me about the background info and the science that went into it, it really fascinated me. I was like, wow, I didn't know anyone went to this extreme of these products. And so I jumped on what we call an ultimate program. And in six days, it basically just changed my life. I bounced out of bed full of energy. I went from a non-believer to, to a believer, like, you know, it was just unbelievable. And so I started training again, recovery from training, just so many benefits it had had. And that's when I got intrigued by the business. I had a lot of skeptics around me saying, don't do it, it's this and that. They had their perception of it, but I went to a big event. Yeah, it really opened my eyes to it. And so I've been doing that for the last 12 years, just trying to help people get healthier, happier, whether they want to lose weight, gain weight. You know, I think it's so important now as food, I believe, is getting worse and worse out there. We don't even know what we're consuming half the time. That It's important to put some really good nutrition into the body. And that's why I love Herbalife. I never miss a single day of taking the products, but I incorporate it with whole food eating as well. It's not just that I just live on it, but I really truly believe it's the best product on the planet. That's my belief. And um, yeah, and then I do a lot of footy talks in that too. The last two years I've been inundated with so many footy talks around the country and I've been loving that as well. It's been an absolute blessing too. So it gets me to all these country towns and places that I would never go to in Australia. We don't realise, I mean, we know the enormity of the country, but we probably take it for granted in some ways, but there's so many beautiful places. And so I get to go to there. And you know, my last trip was to the Pilbara area in WA, and that was just fascinating for me. I'd never been there, except for Newman. I went to see all these other towns. It was unbelievable. Well, congratulations on everything you've done. And, and it's interesting you talk about healthy lifestyle after football, because not everyone follows that trajectory. I mean, you are still... Well, you look as fit as you were when you were playing, still absolutely ripped. You and Andrew McLeod in the best shape that I've seen post-playing. How difficult is the transition out of football for some people? Because did try to get back into Carlton after you played and unfortunately perhaps they didn't want you to return. Do you, do you think it's important to always have an eye to the future once you've finished playing? Yeah, it is. And I'll just quickly touch on Andrew McLeod. He's in unbelievable condition. I love the guy and what an unbelievable footballer, but just a, a wonderful man as well. And I catch up with him occasionally as well and I think my the, the, my idol was Tom Hafey before me I always thought oh my god look at he always looked after himself and I admire the fact that he did you know after post football when people let themselves go and so yes Daniel really important to prepare yourself I thought I was prepared I was one of the lucky ones that got to play you know 16 years I was on the list for 17 years and did all of that and there's others that go into the system and don't even last that long and I thought I was ready for after football life but I wasn't, you know, I still had so many years of work that I had to do and so I really did have to find myself. So I think nowadays, I think the players now would understand the importance of it because I watched the, the guys before me retire, you know, that a lot of them worked part-time and then played footy. They were probably a little bit more prepared and then it came the stage where we were like full-time really footballers and maybe working a little bit part-time and nothing, we didn't have enough time to really work and so we probably weren't as prepared as what some of the other guys were. Taking you back to the start, so you are the son of European migrants, so Greek-Egyptian father and Italian mother. Whereabouts uh, are they from in, in Italy and, and also Egypt? My dad was from Alexandra. He was born in Cairo in Egypt, but his family's Greek-Cypriot, and so they must have went there. I heard from as far as I know, it was a very prosperous country back then, Egypt, but then once the new... My minister got in there, they did basically an ethnic cleanse, I think, and everyone sort of had to flee. And so my dad just got a passport to Australia while the rest of his family, his father, his brother and wife and his sister and husband went to South Africa and his two other brothers and their wives went to Greece. And so he was the only one that came to Australia. My mum was born in North Italy in a place called Treviso, well, near Treviso, it's called Arcade, but that's the north near Venice up north of Italy and so all their families there and I've been there multiple times. My dad's family's a little bit more scattered but my mum's family's yeah, still there in, in the same town, a lot of them and yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Okay, so when did they come to Australia? Well, they came in the 60s. I'm not sure exactly what year but sometime in the 60s. I think my father was probably here a year or two before my mum arrived from Italy. 
Do you speak Greek or Italian? I speak more Italian than Greek. I think I picked up the Italian language more. I'd been there like seven times, so it makes it easier. And last time I went to Greece, I needed Ange there with me. He was more like the interpreter. Yeah, okay. okay. I was trying to talk to my uncles, you know, so he yeah, was nice. a big help. Yeah, beautiful. You're obviously born here in Australia, grew up in, in the city of Layla in uh, Victoria. What was your upbringing like? Did you grow up sort of more ethnic per se or more Australian? No, of course ethnic, but there's no doubt the football, like we embrace the Australian culture as well in that in that way because, uh, you know, as you start playing football, you become friends with the Australian people and stuff and uh, you find out how there's such different cultures, but we all get along really well. And that's the area that I, I grew up in. There was a lot of migrants in that area. And so it was a growth area. It was the outskirts of Melbourne. There were so many unbelievable sporting kids. And, yeah, we got attacked, of course, being who we were, migrants at times or whatever. That was a sign of the times back then. Give me those days in Australia where everything was just so peaceful and wonderful and it was the lucky country. I'll take it and get abuse. I don't care. I'd rather go back to those times. It was just a great time to grow up and so I grew up just sport 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 and you know we roamed when I say roam the streets we roamed the parks and we just exercised and played you know we didn't cause any trouble but it was unbelievable and uh, you know it's amazing how all their cultures were different to the Australian people they would come over and whatever we just got along so well and that was why I loved the Layla Football Club so much and that was my first junior club was East Thomastown but the next one was Layla Football Club and it was a mix of both Europeans and Australians but we all just got along so well I've still got great mates from that time even now and I think that's important as well it's funny how when they came to Australia they bought that time so the time that they were living in you know Italy Greece or wherever they took that time and that era to Australia and they remained in that time even to this day yeah they have I mean all, all the culture they believe in everything that they've instilled into us you know what I mean that stuff and I love it because I grew up with two incredible cultures <laughs> I don't know to me I'd say it's the best two cultures in terms of food and stuff like that as well. And so, you know, I had to learn both and it was just a wonderful time. But look, at the end of the day, we all embraced each other. You know, Australia was so good then. To me, growing up, there was only really two sports that we really all idolised was cricket and football. I didn't play cricket as much. I mean, I played with my mates. I did athletics instead of cricket, but football was it, you know. And so, although I had migrant parents and they didn't want my brother and I to play, we still played the game. Whereas nowadays, I feel like the migrants don't really understand the, the real, true Australian culture. The greatest game, you know, the AFL as well, because they come and there's basketball, soccer, and there's all these other alternative different sports that they choose and probably haven't embraced football like the way we did when we were born back then. There was obviously a lot of migrant kids in my school, European kids, and a lot of us, we, we played soccer there for fun, you know, before school would turn up and would play games and stuff, but... There was something about that over ball that intrigued me and I fell in love with it. it was that football and I don't know why, but I never enjoyed soccer the way that I did football. And so that's why I started playing football. Our friends, you know, invited my brother and I. He, my brother was a year older than myself, myself to come down like a footy club and, you know, we went down there, didn't tell mum and dad and got home, it was dark and mum and dad were furious, you know, and they're like, you're not going to play. We're like, we're going to play. And so we did start playing. And so we showed signs very early on and even when I was in grade four, the grade fives and sixes, my brother was in grade five when I was in grade four, and he came up to me and said, the teachers want you to play in our team. And we had over, over a 1,000 kids at our school. We had an unbelievable footy team. And I was like, no, I'm not playing with the grade fives and sixes anyway. I went down to training, and then next thing I knew, I was playing a full forward and in grade four against the grade fives and sixes. So my brother, because he was captain in grade six, and I was captain in grade six, we both showed great signs early on. But you've always been just a natural athlete track and field athlete junior very good high jumper also 110 meter hurdles and discus you broke a few records if my research is correct do you think perhaps if you didn't choose football and stayed with athletics you could have gone to the olympics yeah possibly i think there was a good chance of that in grade five i was a state high jump champion in grade six and i represented victoria pacific school games and yeah and then i was Australian champion high jumper at one stage tim Forsyth came along and started beating he jumped 216 i was like 208 so i was never going to be a high jumper but i won the 110 meter hurdles australian title with an australian record and kyle vanderkop who is i believe the greatest australian hurdler ever he's a phenomenal athlete great guy did hurdles his entire time so look i guess i was a little bit quicker than him at under the same age i, I assume if i broke the australian record and he went on to come seventh at the Olympic final, which is a phenomenal effort. So potentially hurdles, if not hurdles, decathlon, definitely I think decathlon because I was good at quite a few events and I got offered a Division One 
college scholarship to go to America. At that time, just as I signed my contract with Carlton, I was never going to go because, you know, having a European mum and she did everything for me at home, I wasn't going to go and live on my own in America, you understand. And so the football was the easier choice and pathway for me. And my hurdles coach wrote me a letter just after I signed too, saying you have potential to get to the Olympics. We just got to work a little bit harder, whatever. But anyway, at that time there, I signed my contract with Carlton, so potentially could have been an Olympian. I certainly don't have any regrets because those phenomenal athletes who are elite athletes finish their career with not a lot. Whereas me, you know, I'm still getting, going around the country around doing footy talks and telling about my story and trying to encourage kids to play sport and keep healthy and active and all those sort of stuff, which I love. So I'm very fortunate that I chose football. So it was as simple as when you received that letter from Carlton, you'd made that decision. You were in the development squad Till Cup All-Australian, when you got the letter, you just decided then that it was football? Carlton sent me a letter when I was 14 to try it in the junior development squad in the under-15. So I made that team two years in a row playing fullback, and I was the only Carlton player to make the Victorian team. And then from there, Carlton invited me to the under-19s. My brother was there. So I went there a couple of years, made the Till Cup team, made the All-Australian team. So I had achieved both sports. I achieved a lot. But yeah, Carlton you know, rang me up and wanted to offer me a contract. I think I knew... I may have loved athletics a little bit more because I, I loved athletics for the fact that, mate, there was no, here's a start, there's the finish. If you're better than me, you win. If I'm better than you, I win. Whereas football was more like, oh, I think he was a better player than you today. You know what I mean? It was always that, yeah, right. that thing. And that's why sometimes I was like, I never won a best and first as a junior, you know, and all these accolades that I should. I'm like, but, you know, I'm sure I'm better than them. Why, why you know, why aren't I winning? So, but at the end of the day, I was never going to leave home. And I, I knew footy. I looked at footballers like they were gladiators. I, you know, I admired them. I was a mad Collins sport. I loved them, and so, you know, I looked at them. They were iconic, and I, I wanted to be like that. And so, football was probably, I think, it was a tough decision. But deep down inside, I think I knew I was going to go that way. Your brother Paul, I know he never played a game, but was he actually on the list? No. So he went under 19s, and uh, he played one reserve game and had a really good game. And that last year, he played under 19s had an incredible year. I thought he had the ability to be able to make senior footy, but they didn't pick him. He was It's funny, the thing is, we're 13 months apart, but he's born in December and I'm born in January. It's like I had a year extra and he had a year less. So he went then and played a VFA Preston, which was a really high-level football back then underneath the AFL. And that was like elite. Like the SANFL back in the day was unbelievable. VFA was like that as well and so okay. he started the season really well he played you know, really good games and then he broke his scaphoid and that was going to keep him out for six weeks and once that happened he never played footy again unfortunately so yeah I don't know I, I believe he, he had the ability to be able to make it Paul especially if he got that training at senior level he was oh, he was very tough and hard so your first season on Carlton's list was 1991 but you didn't debut right. until the next year 92 at that Correct. time, when you, when you first got to the club, you had some of the club's greatest players in Kernahan and Silvani, Bradley, Madden, etc. What was it like walking into the club at this time with all those superstars? Was it intimidating or more exciting? I, mean, I was just a shy kid. I wasn't sure if I really belonged there. I can still remember when I first walked in there and I walked down the corridors and you see all the 200-game players on frame photos as you walk along and then you walk out and you're just like, I don't know, I felt like everyone was staring at me because I, I think it was more like, there's this young kid who's this athlete, probably thinks he can be a footballer, so I was going to get tested, there's no doubt about it. But I walked into the most incredible football club. I, I think it was the greatest club in Australia. I had so much success for decades and just the culture was unbelievable. And so it was very intimidating when, you know, you walk up to someone like Stephen Kernahan, who's arguably maybe the second greatest player coming. I never watched John Nichols play, but... You know, him and Silvani and Bradley and all these names that you just sort of watch from the outside and all of a sudden you're there. And Tommy Alvin was a tough, he was so tough. And then John Doherty, he'd always give me his time. Doherty, I loved him and I'll never forget that fact that he was so so good to me. So I was blessed because I think often Daniel and these younger kids that walk into Calder now, they've got great leaders. And now they were unbelievable last year. And I, I, I hope that they go all the way, win, you know, win a premiership. But the last 10, 15 years, they walk in a completely different football club than what I walked into back in the early 90s. I mean, we were just like, mate, John Elliott was the greatest president of all and he just set the standards. He was, he was if you're going to be here at the Carlton Football Club and you want to be remembered, you've got to win premierships. And that's what it was all about. So I learned early on, mate, this club here, it's all about premierships. I didn't know what other clubs were about, but I was nervous 
thinking about it. So I was very fortunate I walked into that time and got to learn from some of Carlton's greatest players ever. And in terms of the coach, David Parkin was there when, when you arrived. Listened to a lot of interviews with, with you and you seem to have a pretty interesting relationship with David. He had that very old school style. What was your experience like with David Parkin? I never really got along with him too well early on. I don't know, he didn't give me much time of the day. And he probably looked at me, maybe thought I was a bit of a lazy kid, maybe with a bit of talent, or he's seen maybe, I don't know if he's seen talent or just didn't realise how to play me and utilise the talent that I had. I'm not sure which way it was. Yeah, I didn't really see eye to eye with Parker for a long time. Yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like I could have played senior footy a lot earlier if I was maybe guided a little bit better, but I wasn't. I was a little bit lost, you know, and I, I played in every position and uh, I don't know. It just took me a long time to really cement myself as a senior player. I just don't think I understood really what I needed to do in order to become a regular senior player until later on. And, uh, you know, three and a half years into the system, and this was halfway through 94, I got dropped and I, I seriously was just like, well, that's, that's the end of me. I'm, I'm done and dusted here at this club. I don't think any other club is going to want me. In my head, I'm thinking I'll just go back and play Lala Football Club with all my mates, really. But, you know, they sent me to go see a sports psychologist. His name was Anthony Stewart. He's just life-changing for me. And two weeks later, Parker and the the guys decided to pick me. And uh, they played me on the wing in a position where I could thrive a little bit. And that was it. That was the moment. And uh, for the rest of that year, I think I might have been the best players almost every week, except for probably the last finals game and uh, I never looked back and that's the moment that I became that regular senior player that I always hoped and, and wanted to become Yeah because as you mentioned your first couple of seasons you, you, you did struggle to maintain your position in the team and um, the big one was the 1993 grand final team uh, Carlton lost to Essendon and you uh, didn't make the squad you were an emergency, do, do you look back at those first couple of seasons and do you think it was it was more you or more um, the coach that you weren't a solidified best 22 player because you've always well you've always been very versatile through your career you played multiple positions and just a natural athlete there shouldn't be any reason why you wouldn't be playing look maybe a bit of both I'm very coachable Daniel and uh, all all he had to do was really put his arm around me and say Kuda I need you to do this I need you to train a little bit harder here push yourself there just teach me and I would have just done everything that he would have told me to do but I think I was a little bit like that I don't know I was just out there just training and you know not getting picked playing some good games in the reserves and and still not getting picked and watching other players play and thinking well I'm sure I'm playing better than them why aren't I getting you know picked myself and so it was a little bit of all those questions going through my head in 92 you know they played me at fullback I went to best and fairest in the reserves you know fullback um, so, yeah, I was capable of playing anywhere. I think there was one game where I started, maybe in, was it in, no, in defence, one game in the reserves, and I had maybe 15 touches in the first half, and they put me in the middle. I had 28 touches in the second half, but, I, you know, like I finished with 43 touches or whatever in the reserves, but I don't even think I got picked, you know, that, that next week. So I lost a lot of, like, motivation. And uh, there was one game I think I didn't even, I just went out there and just, I, I really just, couldn't be bothered and I think both mum and dad just decided to even leave that day they watched me every every game that I that I play but even they that might they may have even called the club after that and just said you know what, what's going on here because they could see that I just lost my passion but um yeah I don't know the sports psychologist Anthony Stewart certainly you know turned it around and then all of a sudden the club started playing me in positions where like I said I could thrive I mean I was playing here there and everywhere but sometimes I sit there and think you know what kind of career I could have had maybe if I just played in the midfield my entire career where I could excel more than any other position you know, on the ground but I wasn't able to do that because I was so versatile which I prefer don't get me wrong because it's always about the team and putting the team first but maybe I could have had more achievements more accolades if I just solely played in the midfield my entire time like that I'll never know so career started very slow and then really exploded after that. Was it 1995 that you became solidified best 22 player 94 the second half of that that 94 season there's no doubt that there because I really started to excel I guess 95 took it to another level because we had such an outstanding year where we only lost two games for the entire year and I was able to thrive on, on the wing and uh, yeah, so that probably propelled my career even more I got more attention you know all those things that started to come and you know signing deals with Adidas 
you know, all that sort of started around that sort of time doing promotions and getting asked to go here, there and everywhere and everyone wanted to know you back then and in particular after you win the premiership was an unbelievable time of everyone wanting to come around and grab your attention. It was just, my life completely changed. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, Contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. 1995, Carlton, the best team in the competition by a long way. Phenomenal 23-2 record. So that team with yourself, Kernahan, Silvani, Williams, Ratton, Bradley, Christou, I could go on. Been around the mark for a long time with, with the grand final in 93 and then again in 95, but this time winning it. So we know now it was one of the greatest teams we've ever seen. But what do you think it was that made that 1995 Carlton team so good? Yeah, 93, obviously they got to the grand final, lost to Essendon. 94, we're on top of the ladder with one game to go. and We lost to Essendon. Went out straight sets, yeah. Correct. So that was like everyone in the media were like, mate, they're too old, too slow, they're done and dusted. I don't know. Anthony Stewart then got employed by the club after the job that he did on me. Whether he had a factor in it, I'm not sure. He said to Parker, you've got a lot of leaders here. Hand over some of the leadership to them. One of the camps, I think it was at Sorrento, which is a beachside place here in Victoria. We had our community camp or training camp or whatever, and we came up with a game plan where the forwards sat together, the backs and the mids. I mean, it was a game plan, of, I guess a bit like what Pargo did anyway, but maybe because we felt like it came from us, I'm not sure. And so I don't even know how, what our pre-season was like, but come season, we just started to really excel. And we understood we, we didn't have many injuries and we kept a lot of the players during that year and we just stuck to our roles and what we had to do. And we lost only two games to the two bottom teams. I don't even know how. Even then, it was just like, what is going on here? You know, we've yeah, done nothing for the year. But That's weird, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that really changed everything for us after that. And, and yeah, no matter even if we were behind at halftime, we just walked in and, and knew that we could get out there and win. And not to say that I knew we were going to win on grand final day because Geelong were a fabulous team. I knew they'd lost two or three grand finals before that. And I'm thinking, God, I hope it's not their time this time. But yeah, grand final day was, oh, was the greatest experience. And look, to be honest, it's the greatest day of my life. I mean, to win that premiership at 20, age 22, when I went through all those battles for three and a half years to cement myself as a senior player, timed it really well for the 95 season where I was just picked almost automatically every week. And then there I am at the end of it, a premiership player. That was just unbelievable moments for me. Not only just me, but... You can imagine the parents and the family and, and all the two migrant parents who come here, AFL, they're coming into the change rooms, celebrate, you know, like unbelievable for them too. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have vivid memories of the actual game? So you're playing Geelong who, in their own right, were a super team. You beat them mm. by 10 goals. Moments like running up the race onto the ground, the final siren, getting your medal, the change rooms after. Can you take us through those memories? There'll be nerves plenty there. There'll be tension. There'll be excitement. And here we go as the first bounce is underway. They're rocketing home now. Wide towards half forward. Mitch marks in front of Kudafidis. Kudafidis sensation. Inside the last minute of the 95 grand final. Wonderful crowd. Carlton fans delirious with this result. It's all over for the Cats, and the celebration's about to start for Carlton. 
Yeah, before the game, I remember how, how nervous I was, and Ange was always hilarious before the game, but me, I had to like just sit there and concentrate on what I had to do. He was the complete opposite. He, if you concentrated too much, you wouldn't get a kick. So he sort of just settled my nerves. He's just being a fool that he is, an idiot, and he just made me laugh a few times, and just that was enough to just settle my nerves. But I just remember running out there, like, what a feeling it was, grand final day, so nervous. I remember the halftime scuffle when Ange had the ball too and Billy Brownless tackled him after the sign and it was an all-in melee. But I'll never forget halfway through last quarter and we're up by 80-odd points at that stage. I'm there because, you know, even at three-quarter time, like, you sort of know, but you're still not like, mate, there's still quite anything can happen. And halfway through last quarter, up by 80-odd points. And I just remember looking around. I'm in the middle of the MCG. I'm just looking around and just going, oh, my God, I'm about to be a premiership player here. I couldn't believe it. And so that was sort of the... The moments I remember, and then of course when the siren went and Mill, Mill was there, I was looking for Ange and Mill got in the way, so I was hugging Mill, and I think Ange was pointing, uh, Mill was pointing at Ange, Ange was running towards us as well, and yeah, that celebration. I remember after, after the game, my father coming into the change room, you know, giving me a kiss and whatever, and John Elliott was there, and I've got a photo of that, that's probably um, my favourite photo of all time, really, because, you know, I love Jack, I love my dad, I see them as two great, you know, mentors or people in my life and so that photo you know, means a lot to me and then of course yeah running up and getting the medal and hearing the whole crowd chant out kuda kuda I loved when Ange went up there and they've gone woof 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 it was just an unbelievable time so yeah great memories from there everlasting memories and to me I think I, I, I don't know how I surpassed that moment of feeling when a young kid dreaming of playing AFL I never imagined being out there winning a premiership I don't know how you surpass that feeling. But anyway, it's there. And if I do something special one day and it's a part of it, it'd have to be absolutely amazing. Do you feel at all disappointed that the group didn't achieve more throughout those golden years? Mm. So they made three grand finals, won one and lost two. Do you think you guys could have potentially had a dynasty and, and won more premierships in that era of the 90s? Oh, 100%. I mean, 93, I wasn't part of it, so whatever. But 94... I definitely believe, I mean, West Coast went on to win that grand final. We beat them by over 10 goals in Melbourne. I just don't know what happened to us in those last three weeks. I don't know how or why we fell away so quickly. In 95, we proved how good a team we were. Unfortunately, in 96, we may have got a bit carried away in 95 with the celebrations, maybe. In 96, just injuries started to occur with us, and so we started to lose some key players. North Melbourne were a fabulous team. I just don't think they were really that as dominant as, you know what I mean, to go on to win. I was... Sydney were beatable too so yes disappointed I think 97 we just weren't there and 98 we started terribly we won one game and then I think we lost the next nine and then Wayne Britton took over and we almost made finals we finished so so strong that year and then 99 we got the grand final when we weren't ready and Essendon were the best team definitely that year and should have beaten us that day but year 2000 and 2001 we had our chances Essendon were the most dominant team in year 2000 but like we didn't start the season that well, but then we went on to win 13 games in a row. And we just lost to the Bulldogs by, I don't know, it was two or three points. Could have gone either way. And then we got Essendon. And unfortunately, I got injured in that first quarter. Brattles got injured. I think we only lost by 20-something points, maybe. So Melbourne went on to play Essendon that year in the grand final. We beat Melbourne by 99 points that year, but we had injuries at the end. So I think Melbourne beat us in the final which they never would have before we had our full team. Then 2001 was the same. We destroyed Adelaide in the first final and everyone, the commentators were like, everyone's got to be careful, Cohen, in this form. It, like, we were, we were an absolute scary team. We were the last team to destroy Brisbane. We beat them by over 10 goals at Princess Park that year and then they turned their season around and went on to win that premiership. Yeah, I got injured that second week of the final. I, I don't know, I think before that, Rats, I think in the last round, dislocated his elbow like we just got injuries those two years and then by 2002 I missed only played three games that year because of my knee and we had a lot of injuries and so everything fell away and then they sacked John Elliott and sacked Wayne Britton who was an unbelievable coach who's my favourite coach and brought in Dennis Pagan and Ian Collins and the club was I don't know just was the complete opposite of what it was before and we should have won more Dan we, we, we should have for the talent and the team that we had we should have it probably makes that team which was so good underrated you know you look at the teams of Geelong and Hawthorne and Brisbane and, and Richmond and you, you really remember those teams whereas Carl not that you don't remember it but you've only got the one premiership to sort of symbolize that, that team I agree Dan you're spot on for the talent and some of the games that we played and how we 
just smashed teams when we were on. We were exciting to watch them. We had the team of just absolute champions they're playing. And, you know, you speak to any current supporters and they always go back to the 90s because, you know, we were loved by so many. But we really did underachieve for the talent that we had. And we got a little bit of bad luck too with injuries and stuff. So we'd never know if we could have stolen another one, maybe year 2000, maybe 2001. I'm not taking anything away from Essendon or Brisbane because they were phenomenal. But, geez, it would have been fascinating to have a Carl Nesson grand final year 2000 when we were two of the, clearly the best teams. Or, you know, your Carlton and Brisbane or, or Carl Nesson or whatever it was, grand final day 2001. Because, yeah, I, I truly believed in those teams then. We were hard and tough when Wayne Britton had these players, you know, like Franchina and Hume and Mark Porter and Aaron Hamill and Adrian Hickman. Like, he just guided these guys to become like animals for us. And they were so hard, they were hard enough and just... We had a very strong and tough team back then, but unfortunately injuries got in our way. Just going back a couple of years, so after the high of winning the 1995 Premiership, you have a, a massive personal tragedy. You, you lost your father, Demetrios, or Jim. If you're comfortable to speak about it, you dedicated the first chapter of your book to your dad. You lost him at a young age. How did you deal with this when you've got the pressure of being an AFL player when such a massive thing happens in your life? It was the most toughest situation I, you know at that stage of my life I didn't ever imagine my father not being there I mean I loved him and adored him I drove mum and dad to every single game and so when he wasn't there that year he passed away was very difficult for me but to see how quickly the demise of my father was very tough for me so I've gone from just being you know this guy in and out of a team to all of a sudden I have all this fame and people chasing me and following me everywhere to then all of a sudden my father getting you know and, and enjoying the 95 premiership where I was at that my absolute peak and high to then you know two years later three years later seeing uh, my father become really unwell and it was tough I mean I, I probably needed time away from footy but then again I, I'm probably glad that I didn't as well because I think I needed the players in the club to sort of get me through that period. What I didn't need was the expectations from probably the supporters because I wasn't ready for that because when my father passed away, I just I was left with a big hole. I know when he was unwell, I'd, I'd sit with him as much as I could. I didn't want to go to training. I just didn't want to do anything but just spend time with him and hoping and praying that he'd be okay. And so I was living in a fantasy world because he was deteriorating, but I don't think I really wanted to believe that it was deteriorating that quickly. And so I was at training when... The club just came out to me and said, you better go see your father. So I quickly just left and went down there and he passed away that day. And so it was very tough for me. I just turned 25 and he was 58. So my younger brother was still in year 12. I don't know how he coped because if it was year 12, I don't know how I would have coped. And so I, don't know. I was close with my father. Maybe not everyone is, but it certainly affected me in that year there too. And I played some of the worst footy ever until Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell, my two greatest mentors, brought me into the club and said, Cody, you've got to do something about it. Your fitness, because we know your, your dad's passed away. It's a brutal game. Life's brutal. You've got to decide what you want to do because the way you're going, you know, you, you won't be playing seniors soon. And so I remember going home that night. I was really emotional and I just kept thinking about my father and I was drinking so much then. I was just drinking 13 hours, like just going out twice a week. I just didn't care about footy and just was just trying to get over the death of my father and then when I thought of my father looking down at me I thought I am a fool to think that my dad would want to just see me drink my life away and I thought oh my god he'd want to see me play the best footy that I possibly could so I sort of promised him that night that I would train harder than I ever have before and when I did that I didn't want to look like I lied to him so every moment that I didn't feel like training I just got myself out of that mood and just trained harder than I ever did before and then I got to experience the three greatest series football in my football career in 99 year 2001 when I won the MVP in 2001 I had another really outstanding year and uh, yeah all because of I decided to just do it for my dad and that's why I'd love to take a quick moment to thank everyone for tuning in to Amato's fifth quarter podcast and I trust this conversation is finding you well If you're enjoying the content, because I know I am, it would be a massive help to subscribe and leave a rating and review, preferably five stars, as well as following all the socials. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible will help feed the podcast algorithm and boost the visibility of the show, therefore allowing more people to see and listen to the podcast. But enough of that for now. You're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to the guests I have on the show So let's get back into these conversations with former professional athletes. 
1999 is a very interesting year. So Carlton finished sixth that year, 12-10 record. So you definitely weren't the best team in the competition necessarily. But you're able to get through to the grand final. That was an amazing final series. The preliminary final at the MCG against Essendon, who were the, de definitely the best team in, in the AFL that year. You have the greatest quarter ever played in AFL history, according to Sticks Kernahan. Last quarter alone, 12 possessions, 10 kicks, 2 handballs, 6 marks and 2 goals. That is ridiculous. As Carlton caused one of the most unlikely upsets to win by one point and get into the grand final. What are your memories of that game and the final quarter where you pretty much single-handedly got Carlton into the grand final? And now we get set for the final turn. It's an 11-point margin in favour of Essendon. The winner to go into the grand final. Brown waits at the back. And waits. Doesn't have to. To the finish. What a match winner he is. Can he do the unbelievable and pull a final out of the bag for the Blue Baggers? Kuda Fides gets it. Kuda having a real impact. Long gets it out of the middle, but Carlton turn it back. It comes to Rice. The Blues on a roll with Kuda Fides moving into the middle of four and working wonders in the last quarter. Won't quite make it. Oh! Ten minutes of football, he's had three marks and coming up for his fourth kick. Blues by seven points by G. He has been sensational in the last quarter. Kudafidis, that is six marks and coming up for his eighth kick in this last quarter. Well, he's been signed to the coaching panel for two years. He wants to play in the midfield. They've let him loose when it counts most. And here you go. Sensational win, Aussie. We went in there half time, we thought we could do this. They put a run on the third quarter. We fought it out hard in the last quarter, win by a point. It's a dream, it's a dream. I tell you what, you're not going to say this because I know you're a pretty shy sort of guy, but Anthony Kudafidis, you were sensational in that last quarter. I know it's a team game, I know you're going to enjoy this week. Good luck next week. Thanks for your time, you are a sensation. Thanks, good, enjoy. You're right, Daniel. We, we were a bit up and down that year, 99, when we were at our best. We were capable of beating anyone at our worst. Right? Anyone could beat us, but certainly the thrashed us twice throughout that year. They were no doubt the most dominant team and should have won the premiership that year. They were better than North Melbourne, in my opinion. But the prelim final, what I remember was when I turned up there, I just I don't know what sort of day. It felt like it was just a perfect footy day, you know, a bit of sun out there. I don't know, it might have been different. That's how I felt. I was just so pumped up. But I remember John Elliott walking into the rooms and he came to me and he goes, I've got a funny feeling about that Akuda. And I just, I don't know, I stood there and started thinking of the 70s and all that, you know, when, especially when I'm barricading for Colin and Carl will win all these premierships. And well, I started thinking, you know, something I don't know, you know. And I don't know, well, did he go around to everyone else? Maybe. We had a, obviously, we're going to have a great mood in there, but when you think we're coming up against the team that thrashed us twice, you, you wouldn't think we'd be so upbeat about it, but we were. And that first week of that final, we got thrashed by Brisbane, and we are lucky because of the way the final series was that we got West Coast in Melbourne, and we tweaked our game plan. We played phenomenal footy that day against West Coast. So we came in there, and so like, I guess, a little bit of good form. You know, we started so well, and then by halftime, I'm walking in thinking, yeah, I could be in another grand final here. It was almost like, geez, you know, what's happened to Essendon? But then the third quarter Essendon played the way they were capable of playing all quarters. And then they kicked seven goals, seven or whatever. And I was in defence that entire game on Alessio. I was almost like back pocket, half back, stuck down there. In the third quarter, just watching the ball go over my head. And I'm like, mate, I just like, I want to be in the action, you know. I had enough in defence. But like at three-quarter time in the huddle, I remember standing there going, please just put me in the midfield, please. I'm like looking at Bubs, just going, just tell them to put me in the midfield. I was never going to go and ask them myself. But the call didn't come until probably one, two or three minutes. I can't remember when in the last quarter I knew. I seen a runner run towards me. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in the middle. As Kuda, you're in the middle. I thought, oh, you beauty. So that's when it happened. I think my first thing was when Justin Murphy had the ball in a half-forward flank and I'm running from the other side of the wing, sprinting as hard as I could. Thinking in my head, just wait, Murph, just wait. And obviously, he's seen him just bomb the ball in. And as he bombed it in, I marked it and kicked that goal. And uh, yeah, it was just that. And Mark McCurry, who's really was McCurry, I love the guy. You know, would have kicked that goal 99 times out of 100 at the end then. And uh, he missed it. It wasn't the BS of game. And then Dean Wallace 
took on the mad dog, Fraser Brown, and put on the greatest tackle that we'll ever remember. And then, uh, yeah, we won by a point. So in terms of, of that winning feeling, it can never surpass the premiership. But there was anything that was going to be close to it, it was the 99 Freeland final against the unbeatables Essendon. What happened the next week? So 1999 grand final against North Melbourne. They always had the upper hand that day. Do you think it was a case of the preliminary final that was your grand final and you were just burnt out? So once again, the moment has arrived for the first bounce of a grand final. It's a remarkable performance by this team. They finished the 20th century as the team to beat in the new millennium. As the time ticks down and the Kangas have won a fourth premiership, well done, Dennis Pagan. You deserve everything you've got today, and so does your club. Well, <laughs> tears of a different kind today for John Longmire. <laughs> Worthy winners, no question about that. Goodbye, 98. This is 99. We weren't burnt out, but I just don't know if we had the belief. We actually gave nothing that day. I felt like we just, no one sort of lifted. I don't know. We could have just tried that a little bit more. Maybe we just felt content that we'd won that prelim final. I mean, I respect North Melbourne because they were coached great. Dennis Pagan, the team of the decade, they were hard and tough. They played pretty basic sort of footy. It wasn't like they were unbeatable, but they were physically always playing tough in under Dennis. But I just feel like they were beatable, but we just didn't give anything that day. So it wasn't to be. It wasn't the fairy tale end that we'd hoped. But looking back at it now, it was, it was another lost opportunity for us. That's a pretty interesting answer. How do you explain the feeling of losing a grand final? You'd already experienced winning one, and then what's yep. the, the other end of the spectrum being on the, the losing end? It was hard, but I think because the way that we got in there when we weren't expected to even be there and we got there and we lost, it probably wouldn't have been as hard as if we were there as the favourites or just as equally as favourite as the other team that may be losing. So I never snuck into the finals. We're not expecting to get to the grand final and there we are in the grand final. So it hurts, don't get me wrong, like anything does when you play grand final to go there and win. But I don't think it would have hurt as much as if we had finished first or second on the ladder and got to the grand final. And, you know, we're expected to be there and then lost. So not a great feeling, but, yeah, it could have been worse, obviously, for one of the favourites going in. Yeah, okay, interesting. The next year, 2000, is your best individual season. You win the MVP All-Australian, and you probably should have won the Brownlow medal had you not got injured late in the season. Carlton make a preliminary final. David Parkin retires. Do you think this year, you mentioned 2001, but do you think 2000 was sort of the end of an era, per se? No, I think 2001 was, and obviously 2002. Still had a great team in 2001. It was still a very scary team to play. I think we beat Essendon, and then who did we come into? I don't know, our last few weeks of that season, we, we were playing really, really good footy in 2001. So 2000 was the end of an era, but Wayne Britton sort of took over the coaching halfway through 98 anyway and did a lot of the training and game plan stuff. So it was almost like Parco handing over the realm to Wayne Britton. So we knew it's like a progression, and although Parco went after so many years, a great leader, great guy, now we, we missed him. I mean, really, it was it was... Wayne Britton's opportunity now. We loved him. He was the greatest coach. The guys adored him. He got the best out of so many players. He knew every other opposition player. knew the game plan and styles and how to beat opposition teams. And the training was just at such a high level training and got us so fit. He never gets enough acknowledgement for how good a coach he was because it's always the coach and other person who's out there in the public and the media who gets pumped up. But Wayne Britton, for a guy who never played AFL footy, my God, he understood the game very well. So, yeah, 2000 was a year lost once again as the Carlton Football Club because we had an outstanding year but just fell away because of injuries to key players. Wayne Britton is an interesting story. Well, you are very close with him and not a lot these days has really spoken about his time as coach. Why do you think he was only there for two seasons? Because after 2002, Dennis Pagan comes in and, and that's when the club changed a lot. Why do you think Wayne Britton wasn't there for that long as senior coach? Well, John Elliott was towards the end of his realm and I think what, what he'd done every other time was just go and headhunt the best coach and unfortunately he just didn't pick the right one. He had a phenomenal career, Dennis Pagan, but just wasn't the right coach for the time that we needed and as the game started to really advance. And what people don't realise is that Wayne Britton came in in 96, but 
He developed players like like the, the guys that I mentioned before. He basically took them under his wing. You know, get there before training and showing you know, Anthony Francina, Mark Porter, who was tough, tougher than what people think. Adrian Hickman was the toughest player I played with. You know, Matty Allen, Aaron Hamill, tough. All these players that he sort of just took under his wing and really helped develop to become these players that were integral part of our team. Him and Barry Mitchell were there constantly. So Brits was there the whole way through, developed them, took over like the second half of 98. And he was a major part of the reason why we came back to play off in the grand final. 99 beat phenomenal in 2000. And 2001 was still a very scary team to play against and all because of Wayne Britton. So I just don't think people really understand. They just look in the outside and go, oh, he was senior coach for those two years and he was gone. But I don't think they really understand behind the scenes how important he was for David Parker because Parker probably didn't couldn't develop plays like what Wayne Britton could. Parker was a great leader, you know, rah, rah, rah. But could he teach you really how to play? Talk to Andrew McKay. Andrew McKay will cry when he talks about David Parker and that's what Parker did for him, you know, and Ange loves Parker. But for other players too, I found Wayne Britton, Barry Mitchell, I learned so much more from those sort of guys than what I did David Parker. So everyone's different. So Wayne Britton, behind the scenes, just did so much work at that football club and I'm sure if you went back to see talk even to Lance Whitten and these sort of guys a lot of them would praise Wayne Britton so much for, for what he did for them and their football this is also when you had your your injury your major injury you tore your your ACL so you were out for about a year when it comes to injuries in professional sport what is the most difficult part is it the physical mental or emotional impact I think it's all but still got injured and it was hard because I, I was at the peak of my powers and every time I would get injured just when I was playing my best footy, so it made it hard for me. But what do you do? I mean, I kept saying to myself, that's life. All I can do now is just do what I can best with this injury and that is to rehab and get myself back fit again so I can start playing good footy and that's all I did. It was frustrating for me because when I look back, like what you say, I was a Brownlow favourite in year 2000. Even though I got injured in round 20, I don't even know if I would have won. Because, I mean, obviously, I didn't capture the umpire's eyes enough to get votes, even in games when I thought I was probably should have got votes and I didn't. So that year was hard. When I think in the paper, I was like, I don't know how many best on grounds in a row. Like, was it 10 or 12? I don't know how many I got in a row. But in the umpire's eyes, it wasn't the same case. And so, yeah, so that's just the way it goes. And yeah, the way it was, because when I look back at the injuries that I had, you know, maybe I could have achieved even more, you know, a couple of all Australians, whatever else, which just looks really nice in your resume. Not to say I'm not content with what I have, because if someone had said, you're going to achieve this before I started playing, I'll say, mate, I'll take half of that and I'll be happy, you know? Yeah, so I'm, I'm yeah. very content. But you always look back and think, if I didn't get injured, what could have happened? And saying that too, it's probably not... An, and a great thing for me to say because there's a lot of guys that were outstanding footballers that never even got to, we never even got to see their full potential because of injuries as well. So I was very blessed in that sort of way. There's others that get through their careers with not many injuries. I just was one of those guys, unfortunately, at the peak of my powers when I got caught my injuries. And it probably did cost you a few more years in your absolute prime. You possibly could have won a Brownlow mm-hmm. medal or definitely more All Australians and Best and Fairest because it was right as you were coming into your peak. Yeah, that's right, because even in year 2000, I, I came third in the club best in person, although I was voted the most valuable player for that year. But I just missed the last three games plus two or three finals games or whatever it was. So there's another best and fairest or, you know, whatever. So there was a bit of that 99, I finished second in the best and fairest. I missed five last five weeks of the season as well, you know. So it's just all little things like that. But that's life. Because I, I, I sound like a bit of a sook like this, but I'm just... I'm really content with everything that I said. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I thank and thankful and very grateful for everything. I'm not definitely not complaining. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccinos, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions, and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, 
but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. The Dennis Pagan era at Carlton. So he is a very successful coach. He was at North Melbourne for many years, won two premierships from three grand finals. He's the coach of North Melbourne's team of the century. I imagine when he was appointed Carlton, I'm going to assume it was an exciting time but it ended up being a very difficult period for the club. How do you look back at Dennis Pagan's time at Carlton? I admired Dennis. I mean, he's my tool cup coach, and I admired him from afar at North Melbourne. Just, just won premierships every year, under 19. Seems like one year coach the reserves won a premiership, won two in North Melbourne. So even I thought he was the best coach in the competition. And I was devastated Wayne Britton was gone because I loved him and didn't want him to leave. And, and I just felt like... We could have achieved more with Wayne Britton, but John Elliott made the decision and we accepted it. And just Dennis was, uh, I don't know, like this, the opposite that I thought he was. I mean, everything was just so basic and the game was really evolved and into, you know, almost like keepings off. You know, Adelaide would share the ball around, have 40, 400 possessions, average 400 possessions a game, and we'd average 220. And so I think Dennis just stayed with his old philosophy of one-on-one football through the corridor bash and crash and kick the ball long and that sort of stuff but it just the game just evolved so quickly so we, we felt like we fell behind and even with our training parts as well and so Dennis gave his all like he, he wasn't there just saying oh look how good I am I mean he went and got the training early mate he always was professional whatever but to me the game had gone beyond and I, I don't think like the success I don't know I, we never would have you could tell by where we finished every year on the ladder. It was just a difficult time for me because I just wanted to play finals footy and I knew how good this club was and I could see where it was going. But I don't know. The leaders at that stage there, they were running the club. Which I, I don't know what their intentions were, whether it's club first or themselves. I don't know. That's a question you probably have to ask them. I guess I have my thoughts about it. But it was a very difficult time when how incredible this club was and the culture that just disappeared overnight. That was the most saddest part for me. And people don't know how good the club was after that, at that time. But in terms of everything that Dennis achieved in AFL, more than me, wonderful to have achieved everything that he did as a player and a coach and how hard he worked as the under-19s to work his way all the way through to become really probably seen as maybe the greatest coach throughout the 90s as well. So he did a lot and did a lot for the game and deserves all everything that goes his way. Touched on it a little bit there. The mid-2000s, the culture at Carlton seemed to change. There was always this pride to put on the navy blue, a strong sense of respect to those who had been there before, and it seemed a real honour to play for Carlton. But throughout the later years of your career, it seemed the vibe wasn't the same and the club was falling away a bit in that regard. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. It wasn't the same place. It was completely different to what I knew of it, and it was very difficult for me experiencing... 11 of my, or 12 really, because I was on the list for 17 years. 12 of the 17 years. It's such a wonderful place. It was a happy environment. And I think football is such a tough game that if you don't turn up to a happy environment, you won't get the best out of yourself. And that's how I've seen the last five years. I mean, players were just in disarray. We're just sitting there, just scratching our heads, thinking, what has happened to this wonderful football club? Hard for me to describe. You're there in the inner sanctum, but the players were just, and the amount of players that left and retired after the new regime came in was unbelievable. The players that we got in just wasn't, you know, what you want to build your club around. A lot of the players, I shouldn't say all of them, because there were some outstanding players. And Heath Scotland, I think, came at that time. And I think, apart from Diesel, was probably the greatest recruit we got into that football club from another club. Yeah, it was just a demise of a uh, wonderful football club. And the decisions that were being made were just... You just sit there and just scratch your head and just go, how and why? You know, what are their intentions? Is the club first or themselves first? I don't know. As I said before, I have my thoughts on it. But, uh, you know, I don't know how the supporters and all that didn't see it as well. But anyway, I'm only one person. Luckily, I got to experience the first 12 years. I, I, luckily, luckily, I got to experience that first 12 years. 
Did you feel any responsibility being the captain at that time? Like, did you feel that you could have done a little bit more to try and recapture that culture? I tried. It's hard when you've got, you know, your hands tied, handcuffed, really. I mean, I tried. I tried to be as vocal as I could. So, yeah, there wasn't much I can do. So do you think Carlton, like the Carlton of 2024, have they recaptured what your group had in, in those first sort of 10 years of your career? Yeah, I think so. I look at the players and because I go and see the players and I just, they're just wonderful kids now. They're not big-headed. They all say hello. I mean, led by Cripper, who I think is just doing, in terms of a leader for what he's been through, he's just outstanding. He really loves the club. And I, I don't know, I look at the players and how they grab their jumper and after they kick a goal and, you know, they wear it with pride, that's what I want to see. And that's what I'm currently seeing with the current players. And so... I really, truly, really, I believed in them two years ago when they didn't make the finals. And last year, I, I gave up at round 15, but at the start of the year, I was like, man, this team's a top four team. And whatever Vossi did from round 15 onwards was just mind-blowing. You know how bad they were playing to turn around the way they did and get to the finals and the performances that they gave us as supporters were just, oh my goodness. The be- best game I've ever been to was that second week of the final against Melbourne. And yeah, unbelievable. That there to experience, yeah, to experience that with my young boy and you know all my family was there was just brilliant. So uh, you know, the, I just hope that they continue on. Like, uh, of course, I'm going to say they potentially could win the, the grand final. Easy to say, hard to do, but I, I hope that they can because I, I think that I, I really truly think after all these years they've finally got something special there. But you can lose that within a year too. But I feel like they're building something special there at the club. 2007 was your final year in the AFL. You announced your retirement halfway through. How did you come to that decision? Did you always know that 2007 was going to be your last year? And when you did make the decision, was it emotional? Were you just ready to move on? How did you come to that decision? Yeah, I sort of suspected the start of the year. I was starting you know, on the bench. I think pretty much every, every game and you come on, it just became a little bit too hard. So I knew it was going to be my last year. I just I guess I just didn't know when to retire, but Dennis Pagan got sacked and then Brett Radden became coach. So I was coached by him just for a week and uh, I injured my groin in that game and so I couldn't finish it. And yeah, then I think I had nothing left in me. I think it was all those years apart. You know, those last five years were so difficult as a player. Captain for three of those five years and it wasn't easy when the team wasn't performing the way that we'd like it to perform. And so yeah, I pretty much... After that game, just thought I'll retire at the end of the year, but I wasn't sure how long that it was going to keep me out with that groin or whether it was just a, I'd be able to play the next week. But sat with the CEO and on the Monday and decided that it was probably good if I would just retired now and give an opportunity for someone else who's not on the list to get upgraded to the list and play some games before the end of the year. And so, yeah, that was it then. That was it. Made the decision then and, and it was done and dusted. Quick rapid-fire question. So... You were known throughout your career for the one-handed pickup. Pretty much from day one, you pick the ball up with one hand, fend off a play with the other, and you had that long, athletic, easy stride. Did you practice this, or did you feel more coordinated with one hand? How were you so good at it? Well, I never practiced. I don't know. My older brother Paul got a letter in grade six from his teacher to the only kid to pick up the football one hand. He did it. I did it. I didn't even know I was doing it. He oh, did wow. it in the under-19s at Carlton. Okay. He got told off by Ross Henshaw for doing it at training. He said, Could if I say you or anyone else pick up the ball one hand, you won't be here again. So he was I don't know, but we just played that sort of way. And I, yeah, I think I felt more comfortable just running with the ball in one hand, I think. I don't know. I'd, when I first did it against Collingwood back in 1992, it was round 21. Everyone was talking about this one-handed pick-up. I didn't even realise that I did it. So yeah, it was something uh, different to the norm. And you've been pretty prominent TV as well. So you were on Gladiator. You did your Blues Brothers act with, with Ange Christou. Uh, on the footy show, uh, of course, the famous Suvlaki Hut ad back in the day, which is the best video I've ever seen. And you won Dancing with the Stars as well. You're on the same series as Andrew Gaze and Chris Hemsworth as well. Can you share some of your television career with us? Yeah, the Super Hut wasn't the greatest commercial ever. I think it's been voted <laughs> the worst commercial of all time, but plenty of views worldwide. I know that. And uh, it even got to Greece at their most popular show there. And uh, I don't think they could speak, they were laughing that much. So. Must mean something wow. funny about it. <laughs> anyway, That's the best. Yeah, uh, yeah Dancing with the Stars was just a, a great thing to experience. You know, Andrew Gaze was on the show, so he made it a lot easier for me. He's such a funny bloke. And then 
Chris Hemsworth before he was Chris Hemsworth that he is now, and he was a really lovely guy. Back then, he would have still been on Home and Away, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. He okay. was a heartthrob then, so he was loved by many, but he wasn't international icon that he is now. But uh, yeah, he was loved by many, all the girls and all that even then loved him. I met his entire family; they were all so lovely. They're just down earth people, you know. And he's gone on now to become a superstar. He'd probably walk straight past me now, and I'll have to yell out, "Mate, Chris, remember me? I'll teach on Dance with the Stars." But he'd probably like to forget that that moment. So yeah, I did that. Gladiators was a bit of fun as well. And uh, any time I can do something, I've done some of the most silliest things with Ange in the past. That dance of the Blues Brothers, that was actually probably one of the better ones, I reckon. It was so funny because Ange started dancing before he was meant to, and he's yelling out, he goes, start dancing, start dancing. I said, mate, you're too early, wait. Oh, he stuffed up. Yeah, but you couldn't tell on camera, actually. It was so funny, I was laughing. And uh, anyway, we just have a bit of fun. So everything's all just fun, you know. You get yourself out of your comfort zone and just have a little bit of fun, mate. And uh, life's too short to, to worry about those little things. Yeah, great answer. And Kurt, now just... As we are about to close up, throughout your AFL career, the best player you ever played with and why, the best player you ever played against and why, and probably don't need to ask this, but the best coach you ever played under and why. Yeah, uh, Greg Williams was the best player I played with. I've seen his two outstanding years in 93, 94. He's just class, man. I don't know how he did it when he wasn't that quick. He'd find the ball left, right, off. I don't know. You walk off some some games, you just like in awe and just go, "How the hell did he do that?" And I, you know, sticks. Said he, I've seen him play many good games. But I don't know how often I walked off and went, "Oh my god, he was unbelievable today." But sticks was outstanding. But Diesel to me was just, "Oh my god." And then uh, Matty Richardson to me was my most difficult player. I played him a couple of times in in defence, and he, yeah, oh, mate, we talk about athletes. He was a better athlete than me. He could run and he could run like all day. I didn't have great endurance. I had speed power and all that but mate he had that running ability to be able to run so to me I found him the most difficult player to play against our coach we well, well Wayne Britton for me was clearly my favorite and I, sometimes I forget because I had Rod Ashman too in the reserves and loved Ashy so I, I shouldn't forget Rod Ashman as well who's uh, just a, a lovely guy Anthony Kudafiti has been fantastic to have you on the show you're someone that I've always wanted to have on all the very best with everything you're doing now thank you very much Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it, mate. All the very best. And that is another episode done and dusted. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review and follow all the socials. And I will catch you all on the next installment of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.